Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you want to learn a little bit more about what we do, head over to officehours.global. Our first hour, we answer your questions on media and digital productions of all kinds. And the second hour, we tend to spend a little bit more time on a specific subject. And today we'll be discussing how to manage meetings. And when you think about meetings, they can be sometimes take a lot of time, but we're going to talk about efficiencies, the tools that we're using and how to make that work for you. So stay tuned for our second hour and go ahead, producers, go ahead and submit your questions. And 24-7, you can always head over to office, you can always head over to askofficehours.global to submit your questions. And speaking of questions, Bill, let's dive into them. Let's do it. Our first one this morning comes from Samuel Nordvik in Norway. And Samuel says, what to be able to participate in three different Zoom meetings and or events simultaneously, does one have to register three different Zoom accounts with three different email addresses? Or is there a way to register more than one participant under one email? Go ahead, Alex. Uh, yeah. So if it's if they require registration, you'd have to. I don't think you necessarily need to otherwise. Um, and you can uh, I think you can jump into more than one event and Guy can correct me, but more than one event uh, uh, at a time on your own. You just can't do it on the same necessarily on the same computer, which I wouldn't recommend in any way, shape or form. Uh, Guy? Yeah, if you have a business, enterprise, or education account, um, you can ask them to enable something that's called join multi multiple meetings simultaneously. And it's confusing when you do it because it's you're in one Zoom app and then it opens up a whole other uh, Zoom uh, meeting when you join. And so you could accidentally have it when it's enabled be in two separate meetings and not realize it. Uh, so it's kind of dangerous to put on for most users. That's why it's one of those things that the admin has control over, but you can do two with the joint simultaneous meetings. I'll put a link in the chat to the uh, help file. I, I've had it on my system and uh, I've been in, accidentally in two meetings at the same time, but it is handy if you're listening <coughs> to two, but it is like having two minds when you're in two meetings at the same time, trying to listen and keep track of things. And I see just from our, our back end, just chiming in here that Zoom events allow one registration per email. Next question. Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York is up next. Morning, everyone. What is the panel's take on Bluetooth button devices for virtual presentations and productions like our friend Felipe demonstrates with the Flick button? And he's got a link to that YouTube video. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I don't know. I don't. I kind of don't like uh, interface devices that have multiple functions depending upon how long you press the button. This is what the thing looks like. It looks like a little uh, tablet uh, that you could swallow, but don't. It's a uh, a Bluetooth trigger, and I guess it would be okay for uh, virtual presentations because uh, it's Bluetooth. Probably doesn't have very good range. So as long as you're sitting right next to your computer for a virtual presentation, it could work. But if you have three different actions based on a single press, a long press, or a double press, uh, it can get confusing if you trigger the wrong thing because you held the button a little too long or you didn't had too much space between the first press and the second press, the double press. It may not register. They're always too confusing. I'd rather have something that I can tactilely feel and tell which button I'm going to press by my position of my fingers on the uh, on the pickle on the on the device that's going to trigger the changes nigel yeah my first instinct was you could use it just like courtney would 
said uh, as a clicker, but invariably I've discovered that the more clever the clicker, the bigger problem you end up with and that you need to keep your clickers as simple as possible. And a bright light which one presses the button on the keyboard is always, I thought, the best way to do it. Um, I've actually started to see these things emerge in home automation quite a lot, as, by the way, are RFID tags that you could use your phone. So in the same way you'd use Apple Pay, you can go up to device and click on it, and that creates an action in some people's systems. The problem with these things is that they're really good when there's one or two. And then there's 10 and 15 and everything's out of control. And it's very hard to maintain. And then they get lost and then they get broken. And so I think for single-use applications, i tell you one place I have seen it used really well. Uh, these sorts of things are on demos, on stands at trade shows, where you really need something to do one thing and someone just presses that. And it's much cheaper than, than hardwiring some of these things in. I'm also interested, I couldn't work out what software he was using to, to tune that, whether that was a piece of software that was standard in Mac or his piece of software. So small applications tend to work well. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I respect a lot of what Felipe does. So I'm going to, you know, I think that he, he can figure it out. I can't. Um, I, I can't get any of the software. I've t- tried a bunch of the Bluetooth ones. It's, it's over my skill set. So um, I have a hardware mute and uh, I would not, give it up. In fact, I got a smaller hardware mute for my, for the road <laughs> because I just, I found that thinking about whether it was done, I, I think I just need certainty. I need to know that when I click it, it turns it off. And I really like the fact that I have a light on mine. Um, I, I think that there's room if you're out there, if, if manufacturers are listening, there's room to build a better, less expensive one. Um, I don't think that any of the, the, the sound, the studio technologies that I use is really nice. It's just really expensive for the average person. I think you could make one that's halfway between the studio technologies and the, and the uh, roles that a lot of us use, that I'm using on the road and Bill uses all the time. And uh, I think that there's somewhere in between those that could be really, you know, really effective. And Bill? I agree with that 100%. The one thing I would be careful about with these little things, now it may be that the tech inside of this is sophisticated enough so it bonds with or pairs with the receiver and makes that a private connection. I will say I was at NAB one year, maybe 10 years ago, and there was an absolute disaster in one of the big presentations because some idiot had brought their own clicker and decided that it would be really amusing to mess with the slideshow that was being done in front of 400 people. Uh, there was a lot of writing about it afterwards, and I th- I hope the manufacturers made them more secure. But just be wary about that. If you're finding an inexpensive one that works off of a uh, simple uh, Bluetooth or something like that, and it can be hacked, that's that can be a danger. And just coming in, the, the, the chat's on fire early this morning with everyone just cons, uh, with consensus that, you know, don't going, don't go with the Bluetooth. Tim actually also adds a point. You only have one issue and an angry client to understand why. So speaking from experience there, next question. Next one comes to us from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado, and Jack's up with, have you seen the new Canon pan-tilt zoom unit, the PowerShot Pick, it looks like it's called? Oh, here we go, Alex. Yeah, I took a look at it. Um, it's it's a little bulky um, for, for what it does. Um, you know, it looks, I mean, for compared to a webcam, you know, for most of the webcams, I mean, I'm comparing it. When it says PTZ, I immediately connect, connected it to an Insta360 link. Like, how does this compare to the cameras that I already use? Um, so it's small for a PTZ, but I, you know, viewed it as kind of another webcam. Uh, it does do wireless. I don't know how that, you know, how that will work. Um, you know, the, uh, I do think it's interesting at $400. Uh, the, 
I will say that there, on their website, there's a signaling that Mac users will activate very quickly. When something, there's a feature that they have, one, the wireless feature says a little star and it says uh, available for Windows 10 users only. Now, what a Mac user will see when they see that is this was primarily developed for Windows. <laughs> like, you know, like, I don't know if they know that, but if you put a thing on that says this only work, th- that there is some feature in this thing that only works, works on a PC, it means to a Mac user that this was built for a PC and ported to a Mac. And that usually uh, puts you in a, uh, you know, for Mac users, puts you in a little bit of a bind. <laughs> so. Guy? Yeah, I think the Insta360 Link would be, or Ozbot would be the way to go. It's got a larger sensor. Um, these came out a year ago, and they're on Black Friday sale for $199. Bucks. Uh, it doesn't look like the reviews, the 27 that are on uh, Amazon give it favorable reviews, so I'd take a second to look at those before ordering, or if you do, make sure that you can return it. And Alex? Yeah, one of the big value adds to the, the Insta360 Link, and one of the reasons that I use it, is because of the software, because of the interface and how you run it is a big piece of this. And I can tell you from Canon, working with Canon video cameras, it would, it's a hard lift to get me to think that they understand how to build a so- any software that I could use. Like it just, it's the, the, the interface design uh, for the Canon cameras is just a disaster. Like just, I mean, the video cameras, not the still cameras or whatever they are. I mean, they are, they're all disasters. But the, the, their video camera interface just makes me upset just looking at it. Next question. Kane Treble in Mildura, Australia says, running a Rodecaster Pro 2 into the mic of an ATEM Extreme ISO. Yes, I've toggled mic line and I get a horrible buzz on the headset out. The buzz isn't in any recording or streaming to YouTube. Is this an issue with the headset preamp and does anyone else get it? Guy? So the headset out. Um, I was thinking it was the heads, the in. I might have to jump this one over to Courtney, but what I've noticed is that the ATEMs have consumer line level in. So generally what we do is we use a, a radial box or uh, something from art. I'll put a link to those in the chat if that might be. I'll have to reread this, and but let's see what Courtney has to say. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I'd make sure uh, you have both of your uh, both your Roadcaster Pro and your ATEM on the same power strip and power supply. And if uh, you're still getting the buzz, try and it's not a polarized plug. Reverse the position of the wall wart uh, on the plug and see if that helps. Sounds like you're getting a ground loop and you're hearing it in the headphone amplifier. So the grounds between the um, <clears throat> between the roadcaster and the ATEM are there's uh, AC potential on the ground somewhere between those two. So uh, maybe try a different uh, grounded outlet. Uh, uh, between the two and, and see if that helps. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I'm, I'm supporting what Courtney says. Whenever I heard the, see the words horrible buzz, that kind of causes me to think, ah, AC switching transient type ground loop. And that's, you know, when you hear one of those, it's got a, a, a sound. You can tell a lifted ground really clearly, especially when it's up high in the signal. It, it just sounds horrible and you want to get rid of it. So I'm, I think maybe Courtney's got you on the right track. Yeah, definitely. I've been there, done that, and uh, was the TRS, the connection Adrian has in the chat here. If that's the headphone out on the ATEM, I've had it with some TRS plugged headsets, so TRS have been fine. Um, Mickey also says to just double check that you have your, your line straight and yeah, come back and let us know. Bill? 
Yeah, just really quickly, if you have a, a three connector, and if you look at the little 3.5 millimeter TRS or TRRS, or sometimes just TS, those are three different wiring configurations of that same little plug. And I know I carry all three of those adapters so that you can, can a bunch of adapters in the drawer, so that you try to see if one of the adapters that takes it from TRRS down to TRS or TRRS down to TS will kill the buzz. And if so, you know it's a ground loop problem. Courtney? And uh, maybe I misunderstood because I have an ATEM Mini. It doesn't have an, a headphone out, so I assumed the headphone out was on the Rodecaster Pro. Uh, so if it's on the ATEM, I didn't know. They, I don't have an Extreme Pro. Is there a headphone out? Did they finally put a headphone output into the ATEM Mini Extreme? But uh, uh, if that's the case, then... Uh, I would try monitoring out of the uh, out of the Rodecaster Pro, especially since you're not hearing the stuff going out of the Rodecaster Pro into your stream, unless maybe the Rodecaster Pro is upstream of the ATEM. I'm not sure how you have it wired. Next question. Next one comes from JB Windle in Thailand. What is the reliable yet cost-effective way to split an SDI signal? Alex. Yeah, I'm not sure what the most cost effective but what you're looking for is a distro you know and so um you obviously there's a, a, f a fair number of distros that are available for um uh from black magic so you're looking for a, typically a one to six is the one that's out there and i don't know how much that actually costs but that's how we how a lot of us do it um there is a couple of the black magic pieces of hardware that i think are actually a little bit less expensive that will have an eight that are, that are SDI to HDMI, but actually have two SDI outs. And I just can't remember which, which models those are. And those, those can, you can sometimes loop through those. Um, but those will be the most, uh, the most reliable. Uh, I'm not sure if they're the most, the most cost effective. Guy. Yeah. A couple of manufacturers make different, different boxes. Um, a router would be nice if you, if you want to spend a few more bucks, but uh, the one that I like is just the MD46 that gives you one in and four out on the SDI side, but then you can also do HDMI and you can also do some conversions and that's about $300 if uh, that's in the price range. And Courtney? Yeah, he stole my uh, my my thunder there. I, I say the MDHX because it works as we've recommended it as a one in four out uh, distribution amplifier. There you can configure it uh, whether it's loop through or through a DA, which reclocks it um, into those of uh, the from the H SDI in can either loop through directly out or it can go through uh, the uh, amplifier and and uh, come out uh, distributed to those four other. Uh, BNC connectors that are right next to it. And it works for converting HDMI and it changes frame rate and it gives you indications of signals and what's in and what's out. It's much more useful than just a straight DA and does the same thing. And Alex. Uh, the only only one caveat is latency. So you will lose two to three frames going through the MDHX. Um, so that's the thing that we, uh, you know, especially if you do any of the conversions, the loop through may not do that. But you definitely will lose it if you if you do any conversions. The Blackmagic Mini Converter SDI distribution, one to eight is uh, 165. So it's a little less expensive as well. I will say, though, that no kit should exist without an MDHX. <laughs> so so I, I totally agree that it's an incredible piece of hardware and I've got a couple of them. Next question. 
Julius uh, Evans, excuse me, in New Orleans, Louisiana, says, I'm being asked to live stream from 10 different locations on a college campus for an upcoming festival. These streams will be simultaneously delivered to the client's YouTube account or accounts. And any obvious concerns with this 600 megabit connections up at each position is noted. Alex? Uh, no matter what, you should be okay. The, the, here's, the, here's a couple things you want to look at. The caveats that you want to take a look at is 600 megabits up. Is that shared between all the rooms? So if you went and tested at every room, you might see 600 megabits up. But are they all going through the same pipe? Are they all going through the same? Um, now, even if they were, you, you would be okay. But the question is also, are you, do you have your own separate VLAN for those rooms? Each of those rooms or all of those rooms within the university structure. So... On a Saturday afternoon, if you test it and you get 600 megs, what happens during the show? What happens when there's a bunch of people there? What happens when... So you need to make sure that, that it's protected. Uh, for a YouTube stream at 1080p, you should be protecting... I would be protecting 25 megs a second out of each one of those. So you don't need a ton of, of bandwidth, but I would make sure that you own it. Like it is... It is that is your bandwidth. So that's... And if the, if the whole... You know, and so... At a large university, you may have 10 gigs coming in, and each one of these has their own VLAN at 600 megs. But also just know what is what else is always going on in the room, in the building, in the, you know, you, those are the things you want to talk about. It, 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 the, you know, uh, individual bandwidth locations isn't as important as the entire network. Yeah, and just pulling in, I was thinking about this, so thank you for <laughs> for this, Mickey. Mickey says, organize 10 completely independent crews with 10 completely independent pipelines for the 10 independent broadcasts. And then he has an addendum, charge accordingly. Next question. Next question comes to us from Funchak Dorji in Dharamshala, India. Hi, panelists. I was wondering if there's a difference in quality of the stream between the Atom Extremes encoder and the KilaViews G2 encoder. Thanks. Alex? Yeah, I, I will say that we have some concerns about the Atem encoder right now. So I would, I, if, if you told me that I had to go to shoot a, do a show tomorrow with one encoder or the other, I'd probably take the KilaView sight unseen. I haven't used it. Um, mostly because there's some black level thing, black level issues that we thought were really uh, part of the UBC uh, issue that that Blackmagic had, and when we moved to testing the pipeline that we're using for the show, um, we found that it, it it appears to be in the encoding as well. So we're until we do more research, we probably wouldn't recommend doing a live stream if if black levels mattered. <laughs> and what, what, when you're asking what that means is that it does appear that the, the Blackmagic um, conversion to H.264 is crushing the blacks. And we thought that that was just the webcam going into our, um, but as we looked at the streams that we were getting, we were noticing that we were, uh, we corrected it here by um, switching over to, a, to uh, Osprey Talons. Next question. Guy Cochran in Seattle for live streaming conventions booth to booth. Would this be the ultimate? And he's got a link there to an access base, base station. And Alex, these are incredible. Um, look at you know <laughs> these are incredible tanks. Um, they're not. They're, I wouldn't know. I don't know if they would be uh, the. You know, I think the the ultimate is to really decide what you're going to do and then build it to be that thing. Um, but short of that, I think if you're going to move a cart around to cover a convention, I think this is pretty close to the, as good as it's going to get. And Courtney? 
Well, I kind of have a differing opinion. I, I think because of its design, the three-wheel design, uh, it's dangerous to roll around in a convention because people are going to trip over these outboard wheels because you don't have anything that leads directly up from them and you're, they're not necessarily looking down at where their feet are. Also, they tend to be a little top-heavy. You see in this picture they've got a sandbag over one of the wheels there uh, so that uh, to give some weight to the bottom plus the big battery. At the bottom, we'll weight it down some to help with that problem. But if you don't have the big battery at the bottom or sandbags around the base, I would worry about a big monitor up high and uh, three wheels because if you push it at the wrong angle and it hits a cable or something, then it could go over. So it may be your ultimate base station because it'll be the last time you use it. Alex. <laughs> and I will say that I actually clicked on the I went to the I went to Innovator's website and I looked at the wrong one. I would I would agree with Courtney that three wheels is not something I probably do. There's they have four wheel carts as well that are that are really great tanks with monitor uh, build outs and I was in, I was in the wrong page. <laughs> so, so the, uh, so I was looking at some of the carts that they have that, that will extend the carts up. But I think that rolling, I, I rolling a shaft that goes up and has a high, um, um, high center of, 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 of balance with three wheels is not something I'd probably do on a, on a stage or I mean, on a, like- at a conference. Yeah, it looks like the that might be more of a stand station than the even though it has wheels because just yeah, I don't think that the, that's designed to move around often. Yeah, I think it's designed yeah. to. But if you look at like the Voyager or the Echo series or even the Deploy series, there's some. The Deploy series is one that that could be really interesting as far as probably it's the the kind of the wide Deploy series could be kind of an interesting one to to put a bunch of stuff into. And guy. Yeah, when we did uh, the show for Cinegear and we had Noah make a tank, it was similar to this one. Um, the, uh, the next model up, so the one that I linked to previous to doing a little more research, they have another one that has a CPU holder and it's also used to hold large batteries. So if we were doing an all-day event, yeah, we would throw like an EcoFlow or one of these large batteries, which would immediately solve the weight problem. At a CES type event where you are maneuvering through 180,000 people, um, how do you get people to get out of the way? Well, the other one that I'll link to is uh, got dual monitors. So you could put PTZs or two cameras. I like the fact that when we had Noah's uh, set up, we could have a wide shot and a, a secondary shot in case we wanted a close up. Because a lot of times people are holding up these uh, devices, that, you know, whatever the new technology is, and we don't have that close up shot. So it's nice to have two people. It'd be really cool if we could have maybe even three cameras. So that was, we had like a really wide, wide shot. And then somebody remotely could be based on that wide shot controlling the pan tilt and zoom. So we don't even have to have another operator there. So we could get that close up shot with a PTZ. So anyways, I'm just kicking around ideas because we got some shows coming up for 2024 that could be really exciting with something like this. And if you can get people out of the way and not trip over the thing. I mean, I'd probably put some of this, uh, you know, spike trip, this kind of tape all over the thing. I have orange and pink and all these other crazy colors. And then, you know, you could just have a big guy like, I don't know, Bill. Bill, you'll be our security. <laughs> and <laughs> I was I was wondering that guy, way. like when you, when you did have, um, when you did, because I remember you having a cart, did you have enough people? Because if there's someone kind of manning it, they can also kind of block it out. Or well, were you like really as Alex came on? through NAB, I mean, he attracted a lot of attention, which <laughs> a few people, there was like 12 in a parade. So, I mean, people are going to get out of your way. They're not going to trip over the thing if you've got, you know, the right people in front of it or side by side. So 
know, I'm just trying to look at how do we get over thrushes, elevators, uh, you know, anything that we're going to encounter at a show. So I just want to be able to bring the people that are abroad, Manila, Africa, to a show that can't get there. And so I'm just trying to think of how I can get around and not get caught up on anything because Zoomtopia was a mess. I mean, I had a cart with two small wheels and I lost a wheel. <laughs> and that was embarrassing. It's like somebody wrote it up, did you lose this? <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, wheel this down, is the place to, to figure that to figure that out, Alex. Yeah, the reason that I had I went to really really good carts is um, I was doing the first time I the first uh, the first show that we did for the White House. Um, the one of the wheels in my rock and roller folded under, so we had three wheels and we kind of had to pull it as we moved it through the, through the White House. Mm. And and so the first thing the White House asked me on the next event was, are you going to come with a cart with four wheels? <laughs> Lesson learned. It was a joke to them. It was a joke <laughs> to them, but it was not a joke to me. Like, I was like, that will never happen again. And that's why I use card masters now. But the um, uh, I do think that uh, I, I think that what I'm looking at as we kind of grow is trying to A, get a booth, B, get a tank and C, have like lighter things that are backpacks. And that's what we've been kind of experimenting with. And not worrying about the tank actually getting to everywhere. The tank goes to where it can go well. And, you know, there's, you know, and, and then the rest of the, you know, you're not trying to move fast between one thing or another. Like the idea that I have, especially after Cinegear uh, this last year, is that the tank will go and it's expected to be used once every half hour, once every hour. And it's like a two or three camera shoot at someone's booth, which I think will be amazing. But we kind of move it into place. We set up the cameras and we go and it's a really nice little production in somebody's booth. And then there's a, but there's a backpack that fills in between that. And then there's a table that people come to. And I think that those, that mixture of those things is what gets us a better coverage of the entire space um, is that you get, you know, but you use that for the the booths that you've and I think you schedule the tank ahead of time. Like you just say, hey, we're coming to you at, you know, 10 o'clock or 10.30 or 11 or whatever. And we're going to do a 10-minute hit or a 15-minute hit with you to talk about your products. And it's really set up and it's really the, the ones we want to pay attention to. And then you have your sparkling, you know, your, your, you have between that, if you think about a um, like a radio show like The Wheel, you know, you have the, the tank at one point, the, the booth at another point, um, a live view at another point, and then you, or wire, you know, or wireless using, you know, some kind of wireless transmission. But you, you build kind of a, a, a programming dial of how you do those things. And, and then I think it, it becomes much less stressful. But I don't think you try to get quickly from anywhere from one place to the other with a tank-like thing. And as far as getting people out of the way, I, I, I have the answer for you, Guy. It's, it's a Swiss card. Just, 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 I'm just saying, you give, you, you cut, make some people really colorful and give them costumes, pikes, pikes and people costumes. will move out of the way. That's all I'm saying. Swiss card. And Courtney? You know, one thing I, you need in all of these things, which uh, the, the example doesn't really have, is multiple shelves. Horizontal space is a necessity because you'll have a lot of little boxes and gadgets and uh, microphones and spare stuff that you want to put somewhere and you'll notice the deceptiveness of this advertising it shows all this you know big battery and a laptop and a monitor yet there are no wires it's all magically wireless between that laptop and the power and the uh, yeah and pulling in from our community of producers, Richard says that Guy, having done both versions, tank versus um, light on IBC and other places, multiple monopods and good operators 
for the win. And speaking of win, this is a great time for you producers to go ahead and submit your questions for now and our soon coming second hour. Additionally, this show is driven by you. So voting up directs what questions come up next. And if there's some questions that you're kind of iffy about, feel free to vote them in the opposite direction as well. Next question. Next one comes to us from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York, and it is a QR question as well. Morning, everyone. What's the panel's take on time tracking apps, effective or not? If yes, which ones does the panel use or recommend for the Mac platform specifically? Jason? Okay. Uh, time tracking apps are only as effective as, um, you know, your persistent, consistent use of them. Uh, this one is timery, and I think it's it's quite good. It gets the job done, and it's completely cross-platform. Alex? You know, I schedule the time that I have to work on for, for a given project if, if I'm on some kind of retainer that requires that. Um, so I have big scheduled blocks of time that I'm, that I'm using for that, that I'm available, and I, and I work on the things that are there. I have to admit that I don't track my time specifically like that. I keep a general – I do keep a general tab – on how much time I spent. But for the most part, because I don't travel that much, I don't spend that much time where I have to, you know, it's, it's here and I've carved out a time for it and I work on it in that time. Um, and so I, 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 uh, I, I know a lot of folks that get paid by every 15 minutes. I, I don't think I would take a job like that. Like I just said, I was, that I was billing by the hour. Um, that would make me totally insane. So yeah, I don't, I don't have a lot of, I, I've turned on time tracking apps. I just have never, I just found them to be such a distraction. And I, what, what would happen is I invariably forget about them for days, sometimes weeks, <laughs> and go, oh, yeah, I should have been doing that. So I don't, I don't, I don't use them. That would be a very, very big bill. Uh, going to Jason's point of like just it, what's really most important is being building that habit to really use them. Um, Toggle is one that I, I've used in the past. It's been really helpful. I appreciate the fact that it has a mobile application as well. If you have a project management tool like the Asanas, the Mondays of the, the world, they typically either have ingrained in them some kind of time tracking and or there's a third-party app that you can use that will help you um, with that. So again, Toggle is one that I use. And just double check what um, project management tool that you use and see if that's something that could help with your workflow there. Next question. Next one comes to us from J.B. Windle in Thailand. What is the name of the QR code generator for Mac OS that the panel has previously recommended? I'd like to create some QR codes over which I have full control. And that, interestingly, is a QR code question. Jason. Well, I will continue with the QR code question by giving you a QR code to the App Store for QR Factory 3. This is far and away the best that I've seen. And right now on Black Friday, it is uh, 50% off. And I believe that sale is still going on. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I use QR Factory as well. Um, I would say it, I would love to see them add more features that I see on web-based. I won't use a web-based QR generator uh, because I'm always concerned about what's getting added to the code. Um, but I will, um, uh, but I, I do find that QR Factory gives me solid QR codes that are both can be ping, but also can be EPS. Um, and and so buy once and you don't have to worry about subscriptions. You don't have to worry about more things being added to the in-betweens being added to the code. Next question. Michael Patria in Poland says, do you know any Wi-Fi power switch that can be controlled by Mac OS? The idea is to make a fully remote podcast studio with fixed cameras and turn it on 
by Wi-Fi. Nigel. Yeah, so these are all very unreliable devices in my experience that that you will find some work with your phones, some work with uh, Wi-Fi, some work with Bluetooth. Uh, Generally, um, two thoughts here. Number one, uh, if you really want to go this way, make sure stuff connects to HomeKit. So your best chance is a device that is HomeKit compatible. If you go onto Amazon, you can search for any one of these things. I'd really check the comments to make sure they they actually do what they say they're going to. But HomeKit is probably the best way to do this in Mac. Once you do it Bluetooth or, or Wi-Fi on its own, you're really into a, a, a phone app. I would tell you the other thing is if you go down the route that someone like me has gone down with the Stream Deck, you can coordinate all sorts of things and turn on all sorts of things with the Stream Deck, but you still have to power them on. Alex? Uh, yeah, I, I use the Eve, um, and I that's what I do. I, I, I actually have it connected as a shortcut to my watch, to my action button on my watch. So as, I, as I'm wandering towards my office, I hit my watch, and I can see the lights pop up underneath, the, underneath my door as I get to it. It's very, it feels very James Bond. It works well. The single outlets uh, don't work well for me. Um, they haven't, they, I just can't get them to pair, but the power strips have worked uh, relatively well. There is an occasion every couple weeks that it just goes, I can't find it. And it, and it can't find it for a couple hours. And then you come back later and nothing's changed. And it's like, oh, here it is. <laughs> so that's the only problem that I've had with it. Um, but it's because it's sitting where it's sitting, it's very easy for me to just reach over and turn it on if I have to manually as well. And in the comments, Mickey shares network switched PDUs. I use one from CyberPower. APC has good ones as well. Next question. Eric Hertz in Hartford, Connecticut is up next with when there is a large on-site gathering as well as remote attendees. What are some ideas about how to enable the remote participants to be seen in the room? Alex? Yeah, so we've done this in a couple different ways as far as how to make them. There's a couple of things of how they they they're seen and also how are they heard. Um, so this is one of the one of the this is a setup for one of the ones that we had here. Um, so this was done many years ago, um, as you probably can see. It was probably I don't know 2014, almost 10 years ago. Um, this is the first time we did things in the round. It was asked by the client to do this. We were like, this is crazy, but we but what we found was. By doing it in the round here, what we were, what it did is it brought everyone really close. We had 200 people, and they're all this distance away from the, from the process. And so it was really a pretty good experience there. And then also what we did is we have three screens. There's one over here, one over here, so that anybody sitting here in these sections, this section could look over here, this section could look over there, and this section could look over there. So we had screens up that they could see. So if we brought a remote participant in, they'd be able to see, um, they'd all, the people in the ground were always able to just look up and see them talking. It was easy for the folks that were, you know, um, here to, you know, there was a little bit of a crooked neck if, if someone had to look back, but he could always look over there too. This is all just a copy. So they were, they would all look over to where they needed to look at whatever is most easy for them. Um, and what was nice about this is we had about 200 people that were able to be um, put into this, uh, this kind of layout. And then we had, I don't know, a couple thousand that were watching. And and so they were able, and we were taking comments and questions um, as well as bringing people actually on onto here to, to ask questions. And so, so that, you know, that, that worked fairly well as far as, um, as far as bringing people in. And we really did fall kind of in love with that, that layout of in the round. Um, and you can make it even feel even more in the round if you, I don't have pictures of it, but we, we had a couple of them where we, had them on risers coming up up from the ground, and then that really 
makes it kind of like a policy, like, or like a, it's the Senate, <laughs> you know, like, you know, and it, and it feels pretty grand. And then you put up the, the screens over top of those and, and it works pretty well. So, so we found that to be, um, you want to think about odd numbers when you do those kinds of things. It, it gives you better gaps. It means that you have meat on the other side of the gap of each gap and it makes it easier for you to kind of set those up. So, um, so I think that that's the, that, that's the, the way we've done them. Um, the, the other thing to do is to make sure that you have them and, Always go every other, we did it. If you're going to take a question from the room, take a question from online, every other, um, you know, and it has to be every other. It's not everyone in the room and then we're going to go to online. It's every other. And it also makes your camera work way easier because now you can go down to one mic because you always know where you're at because um, you can always position the mic for the next person in the room while, the, while you're, they're dealing with the question with the online. And Alex, did you, was there a size limit? Like, I know they say large gatherings, so we don't necessarily know how many people they're referring to, but for the setup that you just described, does that work there's well no, up until? It just, gets, it, gets, it just gets bigger. I don't think that, I don't think that there's any, uh, I think that there's almost no reason to put more than three to 500 people in a room. Like, I just think that there's like, there's, you know, you know, for, for an event, I think that you, you're better off making it more exclusive and letting everybody else join online if you're going to do that. But I don't, I, I think that the, it's, it is a, I mean, I see people do it. It's just that it's a really, you know, like I, I, I've sat at the back of a lot of them that have 15,000 people, you know, 15,000 people on a, at a keynote or a plenary. And I'm just like, I don't know why people are sitting through this, you know, like, like it's just, it's, you're in the back and it's, it's usually in the morning after you've been out and, and it's, you know, and, and the screens are really small and the people are like an inch high. I'm like, if, if, if the person's an inch high, even with the iMag, I'm like, why don't I just watch this on a screen somewhere? I'm watching yeah. it on a screen anyway. Now I'm watching, sitting in an uncomfortable chair watching on a screen, you know, so I, um, so I, I don't, so I think that the argument when people, I mean, I, I know people want to do it. This would just keep getting bigger. I mean, the biggest version of what I just showed you is a stadium with 70,000 people. You know, it's, it's in the round. <laughs> you know, so there's a bunch of things happening on the screen and it's a hybrid. Yeah. Guy? Yeah, it depends on how technical and elaborate that you want to get. We see the big ones with Tony Robbins where he has in his studio a couple displays that are actually synced up with something like an E2 spider where we're taking a breakout room. Let's say there's 20 people in that have all been tech checked. That's the other part is, you know, at the remote end, do the people look good and do you need to hear them? It sounds like this, they just want to see them. So uh, a couple ways, you know, just Costco has 84 inch TVs for under a thousand bucks. I think Alex was saying the other day. So that, that could fit in, you know, 49 people in a zoom room. You could do a gallery, uh, with that, or you can do it in the cloud and you can, there's different ways of, of putting everybody together, like syncing multiple zoom rooms into one room by, by designing. You could even do it in OBS. You could take those screens, you know, 48 and 48 and for 49 and 49 and put them all together into one. The thing is, um, do you, do you want them to be seen when, something happens and you need to drop them out fast. So like at Zoomtopia, they had a way with Unreal Engine where if somebody did something, they would flip this tile and that person would go away quick. And so behind the CEO, even live, you know, they had people waving and if they want that person to go away, somebody could hit a button and that tile would just gracefully go away. So that's the danger is who are they known people because people can do some crazy stuff on a live and, and mess up your show. The other way is uh, at, at previous year, Zoomtopia, they had... Uh, large monitors. I think they're around 65 inch and they turned them portrait mode and they allowed just singles to come in. And that was pretty cool. I mean, Andy Carlucci even came into a webinar that I, or 
it was a hybrid that uh, he was just down the hall, but we still had him come in over Zoom, which was pretty bizarre. But there was three speakers on stage, plus Andy on a 65 inch, plus another gentleman on another uh, monitor. So that felt, it was weird, but it it still, it worked. I mean, granted, he could have been anywhere in the world. So it just depends on what you want to do and how elaborate you want to get. And Courtney? Yeah, our uh, union has gone to hybrid meetings now, the sound and video union. So it's a lot of video engineers and sound engineers. Uh, But my biggest beef and what they do is they put two large screen 65-inch monitors at the front on either side of the dais where the the, uh, people running the meeting are. And then, of course, there's the people in the room that are watching this. And they put up, they use Zoom and they put up a gallery view on the two monitors. But unfortunately, there's more people remote then we'll fit in one gallery view. So there's two pages and they don't have it arranged so that one monitor can have one page and the other monitor has the other page so that you see everybody. And the other thing is you need to put somebody in charge of uh, managing the video that's going out to these monitors. So you can switch when somebody raises their hand and gets the floor from the remote uh from the remote Zoom uh, entry, they need to be made, put into speaker view or pinned so that we see them full screens as they're making their proposal or whatever, as long as they have the floor. And as soon as they leave the floor, then they can go back to the gallery view. Uh, but uh, you need someone to manage that in real time to to make it effective. Yeah, Eric, the, lots of great tips shared so far. I don't know how much of the the stream you're managing, but if possible, whether that be pulling someone on your team to do community management, basically having someone who will be in the chat also be the eyes and ears of like great comments or people to pull onto those onto the screens, much like has been shared before. But that will really heighten the experience, like Alex mentioned earlier, of like people being seen and heard because that the your remote audience that virtual audience is very much a part of the production and if it's not possible that if they company that you're working with or the client I should say if they already have someone just making sure that they're brought in that pre-production aspect so that they are just really comfortable with how you do it you know the expectations from them because that is just like the cherry on top of an experience for uh, for your virtual audience Alex just to underline something that guy was talking about i mean one of the things that we when we do hybrids the people in the room are special like there's not they're probably not going to act out because they're not general admission <laughs> like, like we you know there's you know so they are the ones that that paid a lot more money they they or they're more connected to the process and so on and so forth and so we put them in the round because we we feel fairly safe we also use you know typically use super 35 sensors and so they're everybody's out of focus there's not that much you could do other than move things uh you know move your hands i guess um so you can't really see what people are doing you definitely can't see any signs and that's by design um out of the all the events that we did, we had online participants. We probably had over 5,000 participants over about six years. Um, we only had people we didn't know be on video twice, and that was by accident. Like we never, ever, 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 never, never, never invite people onto a show that we don't know. You know, like it, you know, and it's just, and, and that's, that's comes from kind of a broadcast background. You just don't do that. Um, people do it all the time. I don't, I don't recommend it. Um, we also, the reason Makana was built was actually for in-room, not, not online. We use it online here. It was on in-room and it was there to eliminate uh, the mics. 
so so anyway, it was literally there. It was it was that was the very first use of it was, hey, let's get the mics out of the room so people can't dominate the conversation and they have to put questions in and vote on them. <laughs> and so that was, you know, and uh, there's a, a variety of organizations, whether they're using Makana or not, that stopped using mics in the room pretty quickly after they they, they saw how much faster their meeting went. Thank you, producers, for your questions. Keep them coming as we get close to our second hour. Remember, this show is driven by you and you can use the the QR code. Uh, Let's get that right there as well to submit your questions. Next question. Next one comes to us from Mitchell Hill in Wilmington, Delaware. Mitchell says the Sony FX30 Super 35 is now selling for $1,599 U.S. Would you pull the trigger? Alex, would you? I'm on a I'm on an FX30 and feeling a little bitter that it's so inexpensive now. Um, you know, so uh, but it is uh, it's a great camera. I I think that for that price, it is the best web camera that you can get. It's also a great shooting camera. I mean, I've taken it out shooting very successfully, so it's a it's a good camera. If I'm going to shoot footage, I still would probably lean into the Blackmagic camera if I'm doing it as a standard film shot. If I'm doing run and gun, I think the FX uh, the FX30 is an amazing camera for run and gun because of the autofocus. And as the as a as my webcam, um, it is. Uh, it's a killer camera, you know, to do that. And especially at that price, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really great value. Next question. Next one comes to us from Funchak Darji in Dharamshala, India. In the event, we have three panels in-house and one coming virtually over Zoom. Do I need to worry about doing a mix minus? Doesn't Zoom have a built-in mix minus? And how about Gmeet? Does it also have a built-in mix minus? Alex? Yeah, so here's the challenge. And I'm assuming when you say three panels, three panelists um, in the room, and I'm assuming that that there are more people in the room. It's not just three people talking. If you have just three people talking to someone online and you're broadcasting it, then I would I would just give them all in-ear monitors and not give them mics and I mean, not give them open speakers. I, I wouldn't bother with that. Um, the challenge that you have when you do an in-room event is that uh, if you have any kind of complex audio and video pipelines that are separated, the the video the audio gets delayed um, to some degree and it it doesn't ma- it ends up not matching up with the uh, echo cancellation and then what you end up with is some pretty horrible uh, feedback loops so um, you might be able to make it work but I wouldn't depend on it what we've done in the past is typically used a Dugan Auto Mix where we're pushing the speakers down or the mics down depending on who's talking. So if someone's talking, the remote person's talking, it pushes the mics down. If the, if the folks on the stage are talking, it pushes the remote person down. Um, and we have found that to be fairly effective. It does take us a little bit of time to tune it, um, but that's the hardware solution for that. And that can be done inside of a Behringer X32, a QL1, a variety of other things. But you need to have something that has a mix mic, uh, has, has it. And that's how we've done that in a lot of shows. Um, but it is something that you don't want to do without some preparation. Um, and, uh, and I wouldn't depend on zoom. Zoom has gotten, is very effective at the echo cancellation. It may be able to pull it off, but I wouldn't depend on it. Um, I think that that's, you know, cause if you don't have a hardware solution, that's going to make that work. Um, and you can do it manually. Just when someone's talking, you move, move the sliders up. And when they're not talking, you move the sliders down, <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but the automatic versions have worked exceptionally well for us for thousands of people. And pulling in from the comments here, Mickey mentions, I would recommend hiring a mix engineer if one is not familiar with mix minuses. So in addition to Alex's solutions, then also possibly. To Mickey's point, it's not just that we have an engineer. 
for all of the major events that we've ever done where we do this, where there's more than a couple hundred, you know, like there's more than 500 people. We only have one engineer that's done that and that's Brian Maddox. <laughs> like literally like he, and he, and if he's not there, he calls in and works with the engineer to tune it, to make it work. It's not a, it's not a minor, minor adjustment. At all, at all. Next question. Next one comes from John Fisher in Oklahoma City. And John says, how would you mic an audience-based choir to record them singing with on-stage talent in a historic 800-seat theater? Go ahead, Guy. I'm not a total expert on this, but our church has two uh, Audix uh, microphones on the sides. They're the micro boom. I believe they're the 50-50s. They go up high and they, they're little uh, mini condenser um, cardioid mics. And then we have one in the center that's a stereo and uh, it's also these dedicated choir mics. But what you'll see uh, if you do a little research is a lot of these Earthworks and some of these other companies that have dedicated, they're really thin because you don't want them, especially if they're a camera presence, you don't want them, um, you know, dominating the scene. Some people use some really large microphones, but I do a lot of research and see what you think. But Earthworks and uh, Audix are the two to take a look at. Uh, I'm sure Mickey or somebody in the chat will also uh, land. And then it's just season to taste, you know, adding some reverb and getting it to uh, to sound how you want, but run some tests. It's hard to run tests on 800 people without getting them in. I, I know because I had to do this a couple of weeks ago and it's tough when you only have a couple of people there versus the full entourage of everybody there. And Courtney? If you have access to the ceiling, I've used these Audio-Technica, the uh, Audio-Technica Pro 35s, which have a, uh, a mic head. You can see it over here on the right. Uh, mic head with a long cable that goes to the uh, power supply and or XLR adapter. And you can hang them down from the ceiling <clears throat> and they have a little wire hanger that will point the microphone in the right angle. And you could hang multiples of those up above the heads of those in the audience uh, to mic the audience. And then you're going to have to carefully balance your uh, PA in the room with your uh, choir mic on stage with uh, the feedback that's coming in from your audience mics. But uh, that way you can get the response of everyone in the 800-seat theater. But it does require you to rig some stuff to the ceiling. Uh, that could be problematic. Next question. Next one comes to us from Idris Hagee in Fairfax, Virginia. Again, what cleaning cloth would you recommend for cleaning Apple devices such as MacBook Pros or Airs and displays like LED TVs in general? Alex. You know, I got the MacBook, uh, the Apple one, but I lost it. I don't know what happened to it. <laughs> so, some travel. So it was like, a, it was great. It was very nice. I mostly use these. These are the little, um, these are the uh, little microfiber ones and I, I buy them by the you, know, you can buy like lots of them all at one time. They come with a lot of things. So that, that typically is what I, what I used to do most, most screens with. And Jason? Yeah, I mean, I, I buy these by the zillions from Sam's Club and they, they come in a big bag and you can just, yeah, just pull one out and use it. Uh, more importantly, I'd say if, you, if you're really concerned about uh, sterilizing, this is the stuff that in uh, Apple stores they use to keep their devices nice and shiny. It's called whoosh. And um, it works very well. You can also use that to clean eyeglasses and just about anything. A note about uh, large LED screens, um, if they're not shiny, sometimes they can just I, – I found that sometimes you have to be really careful and you'll do more harm than good trying to clean it. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer up next from Vero, Florida. Do the panelists use a NAS, Network Attached Storage, on their home Wi-Fi for music or pictures? If so, what do you recommend to share all that holiday music? Go ahead, Nigel. 
Yeah, I have a Synology system, and I find that the the best way to share everything on my network. I I got the five bay uh, one with the appropriate amount of uh, added on memory. Um, I, I would tell you that my biggest frustrations are are not serving music. My biggest biggest frustration is trying to make my photos and all that work because sometimes it it doesn't like a NAS system. Um, I do like the fact that uh, all the devices in the house. Um, uh, back up to it though. Jason? Um, yeah, I use a Synology too. I, the one that I have is the 1552. What I like about this one is that you can add a card into it for 10 gigabit Ethernet, which certainly speeds that whole process up. You can upgrade the RAM. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty solid unit. Next question. Scott Wasserman's up next from Detroit, Michigan. Holiday gifts. What are you given or have you been given in the past for through clients and or vendors? What are the memorable holiday gifts you have received? Alex. You know, there, I can tell you what not to give. <laughs> and then I'll tell you what one to give. Um, you know, what not to give is don't give alcohol anymore. I mean, I, I come from a Scott-Irish family and only there's only like two people left that still drink alcohol. So so, um, so it's not, not as uh, popular as it used to be. So wine and whiskey and all those other things tend to, tend to not be as, as popular. Um, the, um, uh, the other thing not to, I don't, I, I enjoy the thought for fruit baskets and, and, and baskets of food. I really don't appreciate someone sending me, I'll be honest, I don't appreciate sending me sending a lot of sweets. Like, cause then it's like in the house and I'm trying to, you know, I just don't want it around. Um, and so, so I, I don't really like getting sweets. I will say that, uh, sending your, sending your vendors, um, coffee cups. <laughs> it's really nice. <laughs> so, so anyway, just make sure they're high quality. Um, then you, they end up using them all the time, but get, get, you know, really high. If you're going to send out something that someone's going to use, think about the kind of person that they are and, uh, think about, um, uh, what they might actually use. Uh, you know, so Yetis are good. This is not a Yeti. This is something else. This is a M. M I R R, and I've been using it for years now. Um, so, so and it's branded. Uh, get your branding and, on there. Yeah, too. get your branding on it. Like that's how they remember that it's the, that it's yours. Uh, you know, and so some companies are really good at that. There's a lot of branded stuff, and so, um, but the M I R R and the and the Yetis are really really popular um, as far as sending someone something with your with your logo on it. You'll see someone sent me a, a Yeti, and I think I used it for five years. You know, like it was, and I lost it in some move, and then I moved to this one. But, but the, but I think that that's the. Um, those are those are really great, great solutions. Nigel, yeah. Um, so I'm going through this at the moment with my direct reports, trying to decide who drinks alcohol, dude, who doesn't drink alcohol, who uh, who would be offended by alcohol, who drinks meat, who doesn't drink meat. So all of those things are booby traps if you don't know your client or your employee well. Uh, the one I was going to say was that, that I think is always a good one is what Alex just said, which is Yeti. That there's always a ho space and a home for something Yeti. And uh, living in Austin, which is the home of Yeti, when I go into the Yeti store, I spend most of my time shaking the head at how expensive they are. And so people know they're expensive, and therefore that sort of gift is well appreciated. It's a bit late to get it branded for Christmas, though. 
This this is true. And don't underestimate the the power of of a gift card, a gift card where it is for Starbucks or whatever you've been working with them for whatever period of time. So you have an idea. Just it's the thoughtfulness behind it as as well. And and just pulling in from the comments here, David says, trying to convince the boss to get us Shonks US headphones, headsets for the team. So I'm assuming those are some office hour grade <laughs> headsets that he's trying he's trying to get the the boss to give them for a gift um for myself any gifts that i've received in the past i'm i'm always you know lights i'm a gadgety person so anything that makes sense that it helps with my workflow i'm always a like yes pour it on bring it on alex <laughs> every time I, I see a guest card now there's a comedian that that said that talked about guest cards he goes guest cards take money that you could use anywhere and then say no you can only use it here <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so anyway, um, the uh, uh, the uh, well, the only thing I'll say with Yetis that bothers me is that a lot of times they don't fit into my car. This this one fits into my car, and and that became a, a, a kind of a thing for me. So make sure there are some Yetis that have kind of that they suck down into the to get smaller to fit into your car uh, your car holder. Um, that's been the only the only uh, challenge there. Yeah. Jason. All right, last thought. If you want to get real clever and meta and you do production, you can always get one of these, which will allow you to clamp just about any um, any mug onto a desk. And that's definitely got staying power. There, there it is. And just pulling in one more just for the sake of, of bringing this in from CJ says, handwritten cards. So in our tech-enabled world, a handwritten card can go a very long way. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. And Douglas says, I recently received my Synthestrom Deluge back from its upgrade, fall, or replacing a seven-segment LED display with an OLED display, and makes the device so much more usable. Would What convoluted UI or UXs stand out for you? And he's got a link there to Synthestrom. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I, I see, uh, yeah, Alex would probably hate the user interface on this because it's got so darn many buttons on it. <laughs> it's a it's a synthesizer sampler combo, and you can see the LED screen that it's so tiny just that they put in there. That's the only display in the whole big deluge of buttons, uh, as it were. Uh, the 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 type of displays that I've user interfaces that I detest are like the Panasonic switchers. Uh, those of you out there remember the like seventies, the one that have the LCD displays with the seventeen different pages of menus and the four buttons underneath that change function depending upon which menu page you have up. Those are inextricable user interfaces. Uh, so those are the kind that I hate as far as the user interface goes. Next question. Next one from Fumchak Dorji in Dharamshala, India. My friend emailed to say that he has a few Raspberry Pi 3B pluses for me. How can I use them in my live production? Alex? I think other people might know this or not. Can they play, use the Playout B? Can you run a... I, we've done... I think the, all the Playout B stuff we've done has been with the 4. And I don't know if the 5 has enough horsepower to to do... The, I, mean, I don't know if the uh, 3 3B has plus. enough horsepower uh, to, to do the uh, play out B, but that would be one of the first things I would think about. I see Jason, Jason chiming in. Yeah. I don't know if you can use play out B with a three B plus. I'm 
pretty stinking certain that you can use uh, companion pie, which is my favorite use for the Raspberry Pi in production. It's just a Swiss Army knife. You plug it into a stream deck, and it is completely self-contained. All right. As we get ready to transition to uh, the top of the hour, thank you again so much, producers, for your questions. Keep them coming as we get ready to have our conversation around managing meetings and how that works. And you can always go to askofficehours.global for more for more. Well, sorry, to (laughs) to submit your questions and voting them up and or down because this show is run by you. And if you are just starting to watch right now, you can always head over to officehours.global to learn more about our schedule for the week as we prepare to get into into this time for our second hour. And oh, just going back really quickly, Tim also says that Companion will run on the three. So that will, Playout B will not run on the Pi 3, but Companion will run on the three. So that'll be tremendously helpful in getting your, um, if you're just getting started with the Playout B. And a quick note that, of course, um, we, we will be doing uh, um, events. <laughs> we, we will uh, uh, be having, we have meetings every Saturday. Um, I think this Saturday is a the first Saturday of the month, so we'll be doing new panelists. So if you're interested in being a panelist, go ahead and, uh, and throw your uh, name in. You can see that in the emails uh, that are coming out every single day. Welcome back to Office Hours, and we're at the top of the hour where we're going to get into this great conversation around managing meetings and what it takes. What are some of the tools that we are using? So producers, go ahead and submit your questions as we get our, as our panels get, panelists get ready to, to raise their hands. Um, the bane of anyone's existence, <laughs> when you get that email that says, okay, you've got said meeting. And one of the things that I found that has been tremendously helpful in just overall just managing a meeting is making sure that you send out an agenda in advance. Um, I noticed that when depending on what kind of clients that we're working with, the higher up that you go up that the, the food chain per se, is that they are looking for that at least 24, 48 hours, if not more in advance, because their team, depending on whatever the action items are, or just for them to help them get prepared for the topic at hand. And so agendas being like a critical part of it. And also just knowing yourself and how you how you operate. At times, we'll have a project manager who will run the meeting. That way, there's one person that is focused on the, the meeting because we've all been there where sometimes meetings can run off track. And by, you know, having someone who's managing the agenda, making sure that they're capturing all the notes. That way, everyone involved in the meeting can stay focused, can stay on cue, and then making sure, too, that some of those side conversations that ultimately bubble up whenever you're having a meeting, that those side conversations, if it needs to be another meeting that that gets panned out, that's helpful. I remember working on a, um, a project with Blavity, um, just working on their, their Afrotech. This is a number of years ago. Like, those were some of the 
the most efficient meetings I've seen. Like they were very, very much so that even in the meeting, they are working with a project management tool. And as the tasks are coming up, they're already assigning them. And that just really saving a lot of time that comes in with the follow up behind the meeting as well. So just like as a high level, because I know I see all <laughs> see the panel looking to get in agenda, I'll offer that up as like just making sure that you've got that tight agenda and having someone who's actually running the meeting and hopefully more so not if they're they're not necessarily involved in the task there, because then that just helps you keep your meeting on track. Nigel? Yeah, I think the most important question for me at last about meetings is why are you having the meeting? I mean, you really got to ask yourself that question is what is the objective of this meeting? And is a meeting the best way to deliver this objective? And if there's a better way, a better communication for everything from an email, for a phone call to a, a picnic, whatever it is, pick the better way. And, and I think one of the things, particularly during corporate life, is we create these standing meetings every Monday morning, 9 till 10, every Thursday, 7 till 4, whatever it is. And these things happen um, for like zombies. They go on and you can't kill them. So always ask yourself the question, why am I having this meeting? Is this the most effective way? And then translate it. I always start my meetings at work with the first thing I would say is, why are we gathered here together today? And I try and make sure we're all agreed we're gathered for the same purpose. And that purpose, if you can get it clear and articulated, will keep your meeting on track. And there's always somebody in the room who goes, well, actually, I'm not interested in that, or that's not important to me, or something. And that will help you shake that out. So be really clear about that. Alex? You know, I think that one of the things that um, that I would say is keep meetings on time or declare it. You'll notice in a lot of meetings that I get I get into, I'll say, hey, we're going to give everybody five minutes to get in here. And then we sit there and talk. That, uh, especially for online meetings, I actually find that that helps kind of create some glue. We just kind of chit-chat a little bit. It it fills in a place that's missing that we didn't have before. Um, you know, like we used to have in, 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 in room. I used to be just adamant that we were going to start at the top the minute that you know the second that we got to the top okay we're gonna here's the agenda blah 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 and i felt like it i i over time i just started to feel like that sucked a little energy out of the system and allowing it allowing a meeting especially with a client to to just be a little bit social for the first five minutes i find to be pretty useful um you know it just you're talking about how the weekend went it's a very um you know i have a friend uh, in tanzania um and he will not literally not let me ask him a question that is work-related until we've talked about our families and we've talked about how we're doing and everything else. You can't do that the whole time. But there's a certain sync that happens when people just talk a little bit about what happened and everything else. Um, you don't want to, you don't want that to last too long, but I usually carve it out, carve out two to five minutes that allow people to kind of settle in. As far as online and in-person, uh, I will admit that I obviously, I, I know this won't surprise anybody. I think there's almost no reason to do in person very often. I think you can do it. And I think there is a value to doing it every once in a while because everyone gets together and they all have lunch and they all do things and they go to the campus and they do the thing. But if you're working in a corporate environment, the amount of chaos that is created around physical meetings 
um, is, is, is I think people just get used to the, the abuse, you know, like, so you have a handful of conference rooms, you have to schedule them in, into advance. There's somebody standing outside ready to load into your conference room while you're there. You're standing outside waiting to get into that conference room until the minute that they, they lose the conference room. Um, and so, and it's just, and, and the amount of dead time created, when people say that there's a loss of productivity when people work at home, I'm like, have you ever actually worked in a conference, in a, in a, in a, you know, as a, not as a C-suite when everyone's waiting for you, but as a regular person in these, in these, in these locations, there's just an enormous amount of waste of time. I got to go to building 18. So now I got to walk across campus. You know, I got a 25 minute meeting that's going to take another 10 minutes to get there and back. You know, these are all things that, that go away when you're, when you're doing them online. And so that's the, you know, the kind of thing, something to think about there. Uh, do think about, have a really good reason to go more than 25 minutes. You know, like, like, like there's 25 minutes is a great meeting time, not 30, 25. That gives everybody a breath to get ready for the next meeting. It doesn't mean that they're dumping out and going into the next one. So really think hard about why the meeting is longer than 25 minutes. Um, it can go up to 30, but I, I try to really, I mean, I do hour meetings, but it's got to be good. You know, like, it, you, know, or, you know, it's, you know, because um, you're really, do we really need to spend an hour talking about this? And sometimes you do. Sometimes I have, I have meetings that are four hours long and they're needed that way. Um, as you work through those meetings, uh, as you work through meetings, you do want to be, whether you call it this or not, um, do think about the tasks as what Apple would call a directly responsible individual. Who is the DRI for this? And you'll hear this all, you know, you'll, you'll, who's the DRI? Like, who is going to do this? You know, like, who is going to be, that's the direct, you know, who is going to be accountable that this is actually going to get done? Not that we should do some things, but who is going to do those things? You don't have to make it, I don't make it that formal, uh, but I do do it. <laughs> like, okay, are you going to do this? <laughs> or when, when, we, when, when are you going to work on this? Or what do you, and oftentimes mine comes in, what do you need to get that done? That means I'm expecting you to do it. And I'm trying to make sure that you're resourced to make that actually happen. Um, agendas, as I said before, is, are really important. Um, and just make sure that somebody's running the meeting. And don't be afraid to take over the meeting if someone isn't. Like I've had clients that are not strong at meetings and I don't just take it over, but I slowly kind of start asking questions and, Within a handful of meetings, people just let me run the meeting. <laughs> like, you know, like, you know, just, you know, like, and, and they kind of expect it. It's a lot easier sometimes for the client to do that. If they're a strong personality and they want to run the meeting, then let them run it. You know, like, that's not a problem. But if they're not, oftentimes they're more comfortable. You'll find that they're more comfortable. You know, it's a really delicate thing to do. But you can even as a, as a, you know, as a contractor take over the meeting just by asking questions or, or whatever. You may have an agenda. They may not. Um, if you're just an attendee at the at the meeting, make sure that you have a list of the things that you want to come out of the meeting with. You know, like I want to say these things that we need to worry about. I want. I usually have. I have a notes document, and I'll have a meeting. So my every meeting that I'm in, I have a notes document. I put in the client, the project, and the date and time of the meeting. That way, I can search it, search for it in notes. Like I had this meeting on this day. I can look at it, and I can find it. I can go back and and get to it. I have the notes. The first thing that I have listed on it is what I wanted to bring up and, and address. And then and below that, there's a little dot, 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 dot. <laughs> and then below it is my notes. I just, I'm just typing while I'm, you know, while, while they're talking and, and of just the key things that I need to, to remember. Um, and, and I do that for, for, you know, I have a lot of me. That's probably the number one thing in my, in my notes section. Alex, for those meetings that typically run just as a, a, a guide for those that are watching that you said the shorter meetings and then those that sometimes are those 60 minute meetings, what's the differentiator? Are the 60 minute ones it's, more like it's real task? development? Yeah. It's real development. Like I when when we do software, I it 
So I hate four-hour me- four meetings. <laughs> like I hate them, uh, but we've done them. In software development, sometimes you just say, just sit with it and, you, and you're working with the software development team and you just got to nug through it. They need, they need all this information at one time. They can't do anything. You can have four meetings. You can have four hours over four days, but you need to have four hours of meetings. And sometimes it's just easier to sit down in the afternoon and do it. And so we'll sit there in Miro and, and just kind of work through like, here are the requirements and this is what it needs to do. And this is what it can't do. And this is the kind of thing that, you know, this is what the interface has to have and, and everything else. And, and, it, and you're drawing it out. And I have to admit after that day, I'm done. Like after, I always do those in the afternoon because when I'm done with a four hour meeting and that's the, that's all I'm going to do that day. Um, and so, uh, so I, but I, I do think that those are required. I think that, 95 to 99% of meetings can be 25 minutes long. And, and if someone schedules an hour, I kind of look at it sideways like, okay. But now on the other side of that is that you sometimes need a lot of Q&A. So for instance, we were scheduling the, the volunteer meetings and the panelist meetings on Saturday mornings to be, uh, um, we started scheduling them as half an hour, but when we get into Q&A, they all end up being 45 minutes. You know, like you have to also look at the natural length of the, it seems to take people 15, 20 minutes to warm up and there's a whole bunch of questions <laughs> and you don't want to, you know, we're there to check in. We're there to talk about things. And so when you're doing Q&A, it can go longer. Um, and again, it, I, I do believe in the, the regular check-ins, even if I don't want to do them only because it does require me to stand up and talk about what I'm working on and, and every, for everybody. And I think that it also, um, uh, I do think that there's a, a certain level of gel. People can get isolated if they're not going to any meetings and just kind of, they can go into their own their own world um, in that area. And I think that especially when you have, I think meetings are more important when people are working from home than they are when uh, people are working in the office. Yeah, and something that you said that was really good there as well is just the when working with the developers, like actually working through and having those conversations, because while they say roughly 50 percent of meetings don't have to happen, those kind of meetings can alleviate days and if not weeks of emails going back and forth and things just being all in the same room to answer and address any of those questions. If you get a group of people who have lists of what they need out of the meeting, showing up for a meeting, you get five people or eight people to do that. The amount of information transferred among everybody in 25 minutes is astounding. Like it is really like, you know, when they when they have the list of I have this, you know, this, you know, like I said, like when we when we have a meeting for own, I know, like oftentimes Mark is managing the ground team. So he's managing everybody, the truck and the cameras and the things. And I'm managing a lot of the, you know, the the um the theaters and the graphics and the you know that kind of thing that are that are there and so we have two different lists of things and he's asking his questions that are all the little things of how are we going to load in and what street do we use and how do we make this work and everything. and I'm asking kind of like what's the you know in the run of you know Mark will be asking on a show as well but I, I'll be asking like where do the graphics go and where do the playouts go and where do the you know are these going to be in five dot one are these going to be in whatever you know like all those things and so. Uh, and we, you know, one meeting we can absorb, you know, eliminate a lot of emails, <laughs> you know, like to, uh, you know, to to make that actually happen. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, I'm rereading the three laws of performance that Nigel turned me on to, and the, the part that kind of rings true here is that if you look at an organization as as a network of conversations, then a meeting is the way that you coordinate the network of conversations which occur. After the meeting, but the meeting's purpose is to coordinate the coordination. It's not to just everybody says their piece and everybody else gets bored type deal. What was that book again? <laughs> Three Laws of Performance. Three Laws of Performance. Wonderful. Bill? 
So for me, I always, I haven't had to do a lot of them in the last 10 years, but before that, I remember I always used to mentally say, is this going to be a community slash cultural meeting or is this going to be a task job meeting? And I considered them different because I approached them differently. Sometimes you have the regular Monday meeting that they call every Monday at 8 o'clock and they just want to get the troops together. And and those are, to me, cultural meetings. It's very much um, the manager of this thing coming in and kind of rallying the troops and getting a little uh, buy-in to the kinds of things that are going on. Uh, There's another kind of meeting, though, that is purely task-oriented. We're in the middle of this project and we've got to get these things done. So everybody report in on what you're getting done. Let's find the places that it's the pinch points that are causing things not to happen and get the whole team's intelligence on breaking through those and getting the project on. And I just think that that thinking about it that way, if I'm doing nothing but task meetings, I'm worried. And if I'm doing nothing but cultural meetings, I'm worried. I want them to be a balance so that part of the what's happening, part of the discussion is about building the culture, building the team, building confidence in the people that I'm working with. And another part of it is to get the stuff done. And I do not want to hear about, you know, the birthday celebration from last week because we're concentrating on something else. That's for the other meeting. And we should do that and celebrate it. That's my two cents. And there's just a lot of conversation going on in the in the comments here. John mentions if you do start on time, people will learn you don't <laughs> you don't sorry, if you don't start on time, people will learn you don't start on time, good, bad, or indifferent. So just making sure that we're just mindful of time and just respecting people's time. He also goes on to say, I also try to end all meetings with who is doing what by when, because that can really derail a, a project and I have a meeting be like null and void by not actually coming back and making sure who's responsible for a said task. And that recap message email that goes out or however you deliver that communication is also a part of just, as I said before, just the agenda that so that we can then get that information, putting that into whatever project plan, putting that, um, getting it into the hands of the necessary people. There might be people who are not necessarily in attendance as well so that they get that information um, as well. And I just wanted to go back to something that Alex had said earlier about just even understanding the cultural, like what's the culture of either the, you know, your client, the company and how, and just country-wise how they do things. Cause I know that I, whenever I'm dealing with meetings that are either, if they're stateside or international, they're just certain customs in how the, the greeting and how the meeting flows and how you communicate with people. Like that's also another very important important part uh, of the meeting. And Guy, I'm happy that you raised your hand because you also had something in the comments of what do we want to accomplish by the end of the allotted time. So if you want to go ahead and share. Yeah. And in a lot of the meetings that we used to have at our corporation, it, it would start out like that. Like, what do we want to have accomplished? And one of the things that you want to do is just be okay with ending a meeting early. Like some of these meetings, they may be in the calendar for 40 minutes, but you may just say, we accomplished what we need to accomplish. Go ahead and, uh, you know, get back to work. Uh, the other thing is uh, there's a book by um, Susan Scott called uh, Fierce Conversations. And in it, you, you really start to become aware of reading people's eyes and their their shoulders and their, their physical attributes. And it's great that we have these fancy cameras and we're able to see everybody clearly, but in a room, uh, you really can feel either tension or you can feel like something that is, is amiss. And sometimes in a meeting, it's a good thing to just 
bubble it up and call it out because the last thing you want is somebody agreeing to something, but they're not really on board. And so you want to be able to physically see that and bring it up and either have the, the acute awareness to either pull that person to the side after the meeting or deal with it right then and there and be aware of what she calls your emotional wake. You can be very destructive and, and terse with your, with your words. And you just got, you got to be really aware of people's feelings because you could make somebody, you know, jump on LinkedIn and be updating their resume by the end of that meeting if you say the wrong thing. So you just really want to be aware of the delicacies of some people's, uh, you know, attitudes of, of their project, their baby. And you want to be like the referee, like where's the developer coming from versus where's this marketing person coming from? Because sometimes there's there's just two different mindsets in, in these meetings. You could really bring this stuff up to the table uh, or arrange another meeting that's just a one-on-one or a two-on do just so that you can, you know, get these things distilled out instead of just letting them sit and bake and people stewing and in, in, uh, that doesn't do anybody any good. And also just considering the nuances that happen when you are in, in the meeting, how people receive, to Guy's point, how they receive information. So you want to make sure that if there's something that needs to be reviewed in advance, is it a quick loom, just throwing out some tools there? Is it a quick loom video that you might create and send that out so that people are like to help them get their minds prepared for whatever you're about to discuss? Is there something that needs to be signed off on? Just having those reminders, sending those kind of reminders out again, just for the efficiencies. Uh, all of those things play into the meeting, knowing that, okay, these people are more visual, so they need this. For those who are more um, like they are the words kind of people and they need all those details, having all of that, because the idea is that in this time that we have, that we can be as effective and efficient as possible. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, and the one thing that I will say, just the note of being in meetings, we're talking about meetings in general, but how to be in meetings. Um, the, the one thing I will say is having a good setup whether it doesn't have to be as good as the ones we have here in the show, but having a good setup makes a difference. And I made the mistake for years of not doing that. Like I did not want to be in video meetings. I didn't. So when I say this, it's not like I bought into it the first, you know, first year uh, for a solid three years, I would show up at most video meetings over a phone call. Like I would just, can I call in? Is there a dial in? Like I just did not want to be part of that. And that was a big mistake. Like it was a, it was a big mistake on my end to, to do that. It really undermines my, um, you know, my connection to the, you know, your connection to the, to the person that you're, the, to the audience. And when everybody is, has a good setup, and I think I've become very specific about this because of our meetings <laughs> and the way we look when we do it. But in general, I will say that if you're just there to listen, that's fine. But if you're there to be part of the meeting, especially if you're there with clients, uh, I rarely will jump on a client meeting, not in this room. <laughs> like, you know, like it, it is a very, very rare thing for me to jump into a client meeting. Um, it's a, one of the reasons I don't, you know, I don't go a lot of places during the day is because I don't want to just jump in over a phone call. That usually is an emergency and that's something that I don't expect to do. Um, so for client meetings, I'm almost always there because I know it makes a difference. The way I look and sound in that process makes a difference in how ideas get moved down the path. The other thing that I do as a participant in the meeting is you will often see me if I'm not talking, you'll see me like this. Like I'll be sitting there listening. See my thumbs? You know what those thumbs tell you subconsciously? I'm not doing anything else other than listening to you. Like if, if you see my two thumbs, you know that my hands are not buying something on Amazon, figuring out where I'm going for dinner, uh, checking my email, checking anything. It's, it's a very subtle thing. But it's just like when I, when I go like this and I, it, it, it subtly tells my client, I'm just listening to you. And if they say something, then I, I start typing. They, they know, they have a pretty good idea that I'm typing notes 
based on something that they're there. They, they can hear it. And sometimes I, I usually leave my mic open so they hear you know, like, cause they, they can hear me doing, or I'll sit like this. This is another, another popular one for me is to sit like this and, and listen to them talk. Um, but I'm showing them, I am very specifically showing them both hands. And, and it is a, I mean, the, the, the death knell in meetings are people doing other things while they're in the meeting. If they don't want to be in the meeting, don't be in the meeting. But I, you know, for me, I try to do everything I can. I'm, I'm not going to say I'm a hundred percent, but I try to do everything I can to be present with a, in a client meeting you know, I try to be as present as I possibly can um, to what they're doing the whole meeting, <laughs> like you know, and and not and not have it be uh, not not be doing other things. You know, it's it's really tempting to because they don't see you doing it, but it just takes energy out of the meeting. And before we get to all of your great questions, just pulling in here, Deborah mentions sometimes I'll join a meeting five minutes early and let the team know this helps make space for water cooler chat. It also helps to do tech checks prior to a meeting. And as Alex said, you know, how we show up even in a meeting, it may seem like a no brainer, but just as an individual taking that necessary time, budget that time in your schedule to prepare for the meeting, even if you are an attendee, which is reviewing anything, asking questions in advance so that there's some questions that are not necessary to bring into the meeting if you have already done that due diligence beforehand. And we'll wrap with you, Nigel. Yeah, I was going to uh, thumbs up again for taking notes. I have a Moleskin notebook. And when I go to meetings, typically with clients and people who I want them to think that I'm listening to them. I take notes. You know, in a restaurant, there's nothing more annoying to me when someone says, I'll remember your order. And then we discuss at dinner among the table how many things they're going to forget in what we said. So I really like it when people write things down. So I tend to write things down. I write them down and then I refer back to them when I re-meet with people. I wanted to make one other observation of body language and, and something Alex did. Uh, he was fine, but don't do that. When, when it looks like you're supporting your chin, its body language is for you're boring me and I'm having problems keeping attention. So, you know, all body language could be misinterpreted, but somebody once told me that. So I'm very scared of finding someone that in a meeting. Doing that. <laughs> Alex? I definitely don't do this. You know, like I definitely don't like put it on the, you know, like that is definitely a, a big no-no. Um, the other thing is, is just know, you know, that you, especially when you're working with clients um, and, and anyone, but but especially with clients, is uh, to prep for the meeting. You know, there are, you know, so a lot of times meetings for me are, are I prep and my, sometimes they're just check-ins and I don't know what to expect, so I don't prep anything. But if I know who I'm, I have a meeting today, for instance, with a VIP um, and um, at noon and at 11 o'clock, you know, 11, 1130, I'm going to be like researching everything that I can possibly find about them and their whole history and where they came from and what they did and how, the, you know, I don't want any side references to show up that I don't, that I don't catch, you know, that are, that are there. And I also um, want to, a lot of times I'm having notes. These are all the things I need to know from them. These are the things that I want to talk to them about. These are all the things that I want to, and that can take for me anywhere from, uh, I have, I have meetings that I do that are 30 minutes long that take me four hours to prep. Like it literally, I take four hours, I like I block four hours before those meetings to get everything kind of sorted out and get it all working out and everything else to make sure that I'm ready to, to put my best foot forward over those, over that 30 minutes. And that, and that's especially when you're working with a C-suite or a VIP individual, you want to, you, you don't want to waste their time. You don't get that time very often. Jason? I need to reiterate what Alex said. 
presence is is all about consolidation. You know, be here now and be present in in the moment. And what that means is sometimes it's really just a stitch in time. Take the things that are in five disparate tabs on web browsers, put them in your notes app, bullet them, and be be prepared to run down, you know, with the time that you have allowed. That is insanely important. And Nigel. Sorry, one net ad here. Um, I have some client meetings next week uh, in Florida. So I am on with the account teams this week to discuss the meetings, but most specifically how the first five minutes of the meeting is going to go. Because sometimes you're there in the meeting because they want you there. Sometimes you're there to take the beating because somebody has to take the beating. And there's nothing worse than a meeting, getting into a meeting with a really important client and the account team go, here's Nigel. And you're like, stop. We haven't discussed, we haven't choreographed the first five minutes of the meeting. And I find that a very important thing to ask for. And Guy? Yeah, when Nigel on the notes part, um, I always have a notepad and I'll put a little star next to action items. And one of the coolest things I remember from a facilitated meeting was a person immediately started the meeting with, in the top right of the board, they put uh, who by when. And it was very just like, whoa, uh, okay, by the time we exit this meeting, that is going to be filled with a name and an agenda item for you to report back that you did that by that date. And that, that creates that accountability because everybody sees it on the board. There's no ifs, ands, or buts because then you take a picture of that and you said, hey, at the last meeting, remember you were assigned that? You said you were going to do it. We were all in agreement. You you nodded. You you gave the acceptance. Where is it? You know, So that creates the accountability. And just to reinforce what um, Nigel had shared as well is if you are going, just knowing our community, if you're going into a meeting with a number of other contractors so that you're this united front before your client rehearsing the handoffs, like it might sound like a lot of effort, but it just really helps you come across very smooth, organized, and and then just, you know, reinforcing the confidence to your client that, you know, you're a well-oiled machine. So that preparation work is everything. All right, Bill, let's get into these questions. All right. Peter Flink in Sweden up next. Any thoughts on what kind of meetings which are best suited as remote ones and what type work better as physical ones? Alex? Uh, when you're doing something or looking at something in in real space, you know, like you're actually looking at a product or you're actually looking at something, pretty useful to be in person. <laughs> like, you know, it, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can do that remotely. But but if you're, you know, handling something, if you're showing something that that is there, um, I think that 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 often if you're walking around a facility that that those are things that are easier to do in person. If you're just talking, I will say a thousand times over and over again, you should do it virtually, like you're wasting everybody's time, you know, to, to make them all wander around to get to something that they, you know, like you're, you have to look at all the time before and after that it takes to get there for everyone to organize the holes that you're building inside of that system. I just don't think that there's, I don't think that, that it makes, makes as much sense for meetings to, to do that on a regular basis. Again, for socializing, then sure, everybody can, you know, uh, have lunch. Courtney? Uh, if there's security issues, like sensitive, like you've got new products that you're going to announce and there's a tight lip, lid on security, on viewing or examining that product, you know, in person has got to be the only way to go because a remote meeting, you really, it's out of your control security-wise. You don't know who's looking over that person's shoulder or if they've got it on speakers that the whole neighborhood is hearing the meeting. Uh, so uh, I'm sure Apple probably doesn't have a lot of remote meetings uh, that are not securely lashed down. 
And then to add to this as well, as Alex said, just sometimes that social aspect, having if you have a distributed team, a remote team, and then doing a, a lunch meeting or just doing where you're sending out lunch to them and working over just to build that camaraderie and just the cohesiveness with the team. That's always something that I've found helpful very much. So people, especially your remote team, just repeat, appreciating that somewhat of a personal touch in in um, bringing everybody together. Alex? I, I don't do this, but I will say that I had a client that on postmortems, everyone would get, they would send you a DoorDash. Like they would, it would, it would arrive about a half an hour before the meeting. And it was like, don't open it until we get to the meeting. And we'd all sit there and we'd all eat things and it was all good. And, and it was really well done. And I thought that person has their, I, I, my, my impression was that person really has their, their, uh, their act together, you know, the, to, to set that up. And it was, it was, you made, definitely made you look forward to what oftentimes is a relatively painful meeting. Next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Up next, how do you kindly ask someone to talk more or less during a meeting? Why might this be an issue either way? Nigel? Well, they're two very different things. The asking someone to talk more, particularly if they're quiet, is best done by asking them a question. What do you think? How would you do it? Engage them and bring them into the conversation. Find some, Don't just put them on the spot. Find something that's relevant to their expertise and encourage them in. Um, if you really want to leave a meeting, assuming the meeting had a purpose and it was useful and all the things we talked about, with everybody having a chance to input. And so that's the best way to get someone who won't talk in is ask them a question, engage them into the conversation. For people who over-talk, um, two issues here. First of all, it some people think out loud and it's a waste of everybody else's time when they do it. And so if you've got a thinker out loud who you know is going to launch into a 20-minute soliloquy to get to the point, uh, get them there before the meeting. Talk to them before the meeting. Here's what I want you to talk about. Here's what I want you to focus on. If they won't do that, you have to deploy what my old boss used to call a flexible punch. Don't do a knockout blow first time. Um, tap them gently. I don't mean physically, I mean verbally. And then get a bit harder. And then at some point, if they really won't shut up, it's for the important of everybody else in the meeting. You have to say, hey, let's give somebody else a chance and ask somebody a question. But you, you've got to manage your way through those things as the meeting's chairman. Alex? Yeah, uh, there's two ways. One is I, I tend to do, I ask questions for both sides of those things. So if someone's talking too much, oftentimes I'll interject with a question and then I'll re, I'll redirect it. Like I'll, I'll ask them a question and they'll say something and then I'll go, well, but what about you guy? And, 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 and what I've done there is I've just, I've just inserted it feels like a conversation, but I've moved the conversation to somebody else um, by kind of severing uh, momentum, you know? And so, and so the, uh, so that's one way that I, that I handle that. Um, and, you know, the, uh, but I do agree that knowing, you know, again, having that agenda. And then the other thing that when people are really good at this and someone's talking too much, if you're in a, a group of people who do a lot of meetings, everyone will just stop talking and that person will eventually realize that they're just standing out there on a, on a stage by themselves. Everyone's just waiting for them to stop talking. And it's a funny thing that it happens in, in large corporations. People will just wait for you to stop. And you can tell that they're all kind of not paying attention and they're just waiting for you to stop talking. And so then you, you learn quickly not to do that. And you don't see that many people run on that much in large corporations. And Courtney? Yeah, and if you're in a public meeting, which is a lot of corporations, publicly held corporations have to have a shareholders meeting, annual shareholders meeting, where they open the floor to questions from the shareholders, which are allowed into the meetings. You establish time limits. You're given a time limit. You can come up and 
propose your question or make your proposal or, uh, you know, bring up any point of order or business. But there's a time limit set and uh, it's enforced. Same thing happens with uh, congressional hearings. When there's any contentious situation where there's two contentious sides to something in a corporate meeting or even a business meeting or a union meeting, you set up uh, a time limit so that you don't have someone just bloviating on and filibustering on. Uh, presenting a point of view and, and monopolizing the amount of time that you have set aside for that meeting. And pulling in from our community, John says, if they report to me, I give feedback after the meeting. If they are not my employee and talk too much, I directly ask other people in the meeting first. Next question. Next one comes from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. What tools do you use to keep meetings on the agenda, timely and not falling into lengthy side discussions? Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, abide by Robert's Rules of Order is uh, one good way. I attended a lot of union meetings in my 45 years in the union. And uh, lately, this just this last year, we've taken, you know, it can be contentious in union meetings and there's a lot of political statements that want to be made and they, there's proposals that are presented from the floor. And this year we've hired a, an independent parliamentarian whose job it is, they're not a member of the union, they don't take sides with anybody, and they're there to rule and keep the rules of order in order so that you don't, uh, you know, that make sure that the, the thing that you propose is parliamentary accepted by the bylaws of the uh, corporation or the union or whatever uh, company you have that has a constitution and bylaws that abides by the rules of the organization. And the parliamentarian will keep that on track and keep you in time if it, there's timekeeping, et cetera. And the, there's a lot of times a sergeant at arms who will enforce the decrees of the parliamentarian. And Nigel? Yeah, uh, chairman of a meeting has to chair the meeting. Uh, is the most important thing. And, and uh, if people don't know how to chair meetings, get this in training. And I think we're going to talk about a video later that can help them do that. Um, I find where things tend to go off the rail is people start asking questions and they start getting sucked into a huge amount of detail that is irrelevant. And particularly unskilled presenters tend to get do this worse. And I tend to say at that point, hey, let's not go down, let's go up. What are we, what's the problem we're trying to solve? What are we trying to do here? Because it's a bottomless pit of despair once somebody asks you questions and you go deeper and deeper. So learning to go back up is the best thing. And if you go back up, hold on, what was the problem we were trying to solve? What we're we trying to do here? What's the outcome we want? You'll reset everybody around that. And Alex? You know, I think that it's, it's a strong leader that's running the meeting. And then just generally keep on pushing a culture of people there to get things done and to be, you know, there's, there, um, there have been companies that, that I've worked with that are very social and they, they kind of bounce around a lot of things. And there's other companies that I've worked with that in the meeting, there is nothing, once you're in the room that you speak about nothing other than what you came to speak about and you, it's social. I mean, it's, it's nice, but it also, there's a, there's a culture to it. And so I think that's part of it, but I find that when people put meetings like agenda items down the side or they lay out all the agenda of, of stuff, it does make it easier for people. But it, it has a certain um, – uh, I, I, I guess I find that 
the especially the younger generations kind of roll their eyes <laughs> they kind of disengage a little bit um and so so it doesn't mean that you don't have that list you just don't necessarily need to show it so you you know you can you the more you can have it feel like a conversation even if you have structure uh, the more comfortable it often feels but that's one of the re- those are the kind of things all that structure that people put around it um is one of the reasons people avoid meetings next question Next one comes from Ronnie Hofsway in Tromsø, Norway. How are you using AI like ChatGPT before, during, and after meetings? What about Whisper to transcribe and sum it up using GPT? Alex? We don't use it for client meetings, but for internal uh, meetings, we're using the Zoom Summarize. And wow, (laughs) is it amazing. Like, it is just mind-blowingly amazing. It breaks everything down into conversation. This is what this person said. And it's just very rarely wrong. Um, It's it's kind of a, like, so it's it's mind-blowing. We don't ask, in the same way we don't ask to record meetings with clients. We don't use the Summarize for client meetings, but it's, it's a pretty impressive tool. Uh, likewise using Zoom. And we actually use a lot of like keywords during our conversation. So, and this is more so internal. If it is client, then it's a matter of like a specific word with them. But like for say example, like action. So I will say action. And so that way, when we go back through the transcript, like it's already listed out for us that, okay, here are those action ones, especially if I know that I need to be like very present in the meeting and I'm not necessarily um, putting out notes. There's just some keywords using so that they can be pulled out. I am highly interested actually in like thinking about how ChatGPT could be um, used for that, but that's just some of the ways that we use it. Next question. Next one comes from Brandon Buttram in Indianapolis, Indiana. Are there any documentaries or video case studies about meetings and meeting culture at companies of various sizes? As someone who's never worked in a traditional corporate circumstance, all I have to go on is the Office Hours TV show, which has to be a oh the Office TV show, which has to be a parody. So, Nigel. Yes. So if you are of a certain age, of which I am, and from the UK, then you were. Uh, when you first got into business, shown some videos made by a company called Video Arts, which was owned by John Cleese. And he produced a fabulous series of videos. They are somewhat dated now, but they are still worth it if you can get through it. And for years, they were thousands of dollars. I mean, I don't know how much money they made. I've just found Meetings Bloody Meetings on Vimeo, full 30-minute free. Um, It's going to be dated. It may not you may not enjoy it. I can't promise that it's not a bit sexist and hasn't aged well. But if you have 30 minutes and you want to get through meetings, meeting bloody meetings is great. The other one that is fabulous is called making your case with the four P's. Those are the two that I still use today. Next question. Next one comes from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Using office hours as an example, how do you deal with experts who can fill the entire agenda on their own? Who decides when to bring the group back on topic? Go ahead, Nigel. Uh, Chairman. Again, the role of the chairman, the person whose meeting it is, is absolutely essential. There will be some experts who, uh, either by default or through lack of understanding, will use that meeting to be their chance to tell everybody how brilliant they are. Uh, It'll be a long and painful meeting for everybody else who's fairly sure how brilliant they were to start with. Um, And so you've got to have a chairman. You've got to be able to do it. And you've got to find the places where those sorts of things happen. And as the meeting owner, get them sidelined. Maybe we could do that as a separate presentation. That's great. I think there's a lot of learning. A lot of people want to know this. Maybe we could spin that off into a separate thing. 
and try not to let your meetings become presentations. Alex? Yeah, I mean, I think that we have a clock on the back end that kind of tells us where we are. It's not really a hard rule. It's just more of a guideline of telling us where we are and how long we've been talking. Um, as a host oftentimes on this show, um, the thing that I always try to do is is be in the back end. I You'll notice that I'll almost never, the only time I answer a question ahead of time is, or, or first, is when there's nobody, nobody's raised their hand. And my goal on every question is not to say anything. <laughs> so, so anyway, so that's the, so that's the thing as a, as a, um, as a host, you try to, you know, kind of do that. But here we have lots of, we, we have a culture, so it's a little easier because if I did, uh-huh, 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 to someone at a regular meeting, they probably wouldn't want to be in meetings with me anymore. And so the way I read this question is just if, say, you had a, a pre-production meeting with maybe some of the panelists that were going to be as a part of a talk, just making sure that, again, they have as much information in advance, really keeping that meeting short, knowing that they would want to, you know, chime in with certain things and Again, I can't stress the uh, how much having that just that project manager, as Nigel says, the the chair person who's like managing that time. And that way they're taking the responsibility and the onus for making sure that the meeting stays on time. And even if there's a need for oh, looking at time, we want to be mindful of your time, like using that kind of language really makes it seem like you're trying to be thoughtful, trying to be respectful of their time. Guy? Yeah, sometimes you, you got to remember uh, who it is that ultimately is your, your customer. So Jeff Bezos did this really well where at the meeting, he put a empty chair there that just said, this is the voice of the customer. And so if you get an expert that's going down, derailed the total meeting, it's like, how does this relate to this guy that's not here? Let's just come back to where what's the whole purpose of this meeting? What's the, what are you getting at? You know, so sometimes you got to be direct and just call them, call them out and just say, hey, uh, We've gone down the rabbit hole. Let's get back on track. And one more point of just knowing if you're the person who has to put these meetings together when possible, if you know that there are some personalities in the room, can that be something, something, some other separate meeting or conversation? Because you do ultimately have that type of control. Next question. Next one comes to us from Guy Cochran in Seattle here in the USA. When do you send prepared material prior to a meeting or do you hand it out at the meeting? Alex? When we have things we want to talk about, I send it out ahead of time. <laughs> when we have, like, if I want you to, you know, I want to give you time, if you have time, to take a look at it so that you're more prepared so I'm not surprising you with anything. Um, so I'm going to send that out ahead of time if, if there's something that I want to show you. If someone sends me something, nine times out of 10, I will go through it in a fair amount of detail if it doesn't have a lot of text. Like if someone sends me six pages of text, there's no way I'm going to read that. Like, you know, and, and so you need to think about that also when you send things out. That's why, I mean, what they'll tell you in most of the big companies, it's decks and demos, decks and demos, decks and demos. You're going to send out a slide deck that's going to give, give people a, the high thing and then a demo of what you're doing. But send out people actual like text in columns. And I have never seen more than you know, one or two people in a meeting of 10 ever read those. So, Courtney? Yeah, publish the agenda ahead of time so people 
and, and just a simple agenda with, you know, numbered lines as to the order of business that's going to be conducted. And I mean, what business is going to be conducted at that meeting and the order at which it will be brought up. Uh, that's important to have uh, to let you know if there's something you makes you want to attend that meeting, if something that is dear, near and dear to your heart is going to be discussed at the meeting, you want to make sure to show up. Also, adjacent to the agenda, if there's something new that's being proposed that people need to know about uh, in more detail before they arrive, you could make an attachment to the agenda so that people could read up on it before they attend the meeting where that particular item or proposal is going to be discussed. And if you have a recording secretary at your meetings or you have regular meetings, having minutes uh, recorded of each meeting and approving the minutes happens usually at the subsequent meeting. So you want to publish the minutes of the previous meeting ahead of time of the current upcoming meeting so people can have read them in advance and approve them or uh, bring up errors in the minutes of what was discussed at the previous meeting if and that is the time to do it um, in the next meeting. So publish and Nigel? that stuff. Yes, I mean, I have a board meeting uh, every quarter with my board. And so I will send them the deck the week before uh, because I want to discuss the points in the deck, not present the deck to them. And that's often aided the way Courtney said it by saying, here's the deck, here are the three or four things we're going to discuss. So I preset what I want the discussion to be so they can focus uh, on that. There are relatively, in my experience, few speakers who are good enough to communicate complicated content without the, the audience having had a chance to go through it first. Uh, there are lazy people who don't do that, and there are people who think they're great presenters, but there are relatively few who can get over very complicated ideas without giving the audience or the people in the meeting a run-up to try and get their brain around it. And Guy. Yes, for a lot of meetings, you don't want the shock and awe, you know, just this big detailed thing for somebody to make a decision on where it really required them to dig into it. So there is a timing thing where sometimes you don't want to send it a week in advance, like Nigel said, because somebody will shelve it and maybe they won't have time. But if it is a lot of detail, then um, choose that appropriate time and use your email schedule send so that... Um, it's a, it's not too early. It's not too late. Just it depends on the subject matter of the meeting and the detail of your report or of your of your uh, preso. But you don't want to shock and awe people unless that's your intention to release this information. Boom and let it let it hit uh, at that exact moment. But a lot of CEOs don't like the the surprise. They want to be in the know before. So give them time to digest that fine fine detail, uh, especially if it's a lot of numbers and a lot of text. Next question. David Brady in New York, can you differentiate a scrum from a meeting? Go ahead, Alex. So um, kind of. <laughs> so I have to say, I don't really get into a lot of definitions. I, like we're all getting together. And, and so scrums tend to be the technical team only. Uh, and they tend to be daily. And they tend not to have a lot of format other than people talking about what they're dealing with and, and trying to get through. Um, the goal is that every day you're trying to get through uh, hiccups in what you're doing, you know, roadblocks and so on and so forth, clearing those out and having kind of a roundtable of these are the roadblocks that I'm working through and trying to cross cross pollinate that that process. And so that's a it's kind of a daily. It, 
scrums are almost always daily at a certain time. And they are similar to, you know, meetings tend to have more stakeholders and tend to have be less frequent. Um, but I, you know, I think that there's a fuzzy line there with stand up daily standups and scrums are probably, you know, cousins, <laughs> you know, but not, but not quite the, not quite a, quite the same. Bill? And the language around uh, this is not really corporate culture. This is really trends in management philosophies. I remember uh, at one year many years ago, suddenly the whole idea of what was called Six Sigma became huge in the tech industry. And across all of my clients that were tech adjacents, they were all talking Six Sigma that, Six Sigma that. And they got really deep into it. And a lot of the language that I heard in doing those scripts started to percolate around the entire industry. So I do think that the language of the philosophy of business operations goes through these periods where the language changes a little bit and you have to kind of be up on it and then it morphs to something else. I don't hear very many people, anywhere near as many people talking about Six Sigma now than I did during those three or four years that it was huge. It's like, who moved my cheese? The language of that little book suddenly got into all the business meetings, rose for a while, disappeared for a while. So I just think it's a hard thing to keep up with all the, the, the what is that the... Uh, just the language of business. Next question. Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Galisteo, New Mexico. Tell us about your worst meeting. Nigel. I have seen a C-level officer uh, get fired at a board meeting. And that was probably the least pleasant thing because the chairman asked them the same question three times. And at the end of the third one, it was clear they hadn't been listening and they were so desperate to say what they thought the answer was without listening to the question that they ended their job. And everybody in the room except them knew at that meeting they were no longer going to be an employee. And it was hardly a fun meeting. Alex? I recall a series of meetings. We had one event that we worked on for, and the, there was probably two months of meetings for that event. It was a pretty big event. And the the organizer just insisted on having like all that they wanted to have an all teams meeting every week. And it was probably 40 people on the call. And, you know, I had like eight minutes of, of an hour, of an hour call to cover. And none of the other stuff was relevant to me at all. <laughs> like, you know, and it was a, a truly, it is where I take the exception of like very quickly, I went to phone call phone and I'd always capture that meeting on, a, on the road you know, and just talk about it because I was just like, I am not going to like waste, you know, I, I just built around that process because it just was a very, you know, you, if you have, you just want to think about your teams and is everyone engaged in this, but are, if you're having large numbers of people, cause I was like this meeting, I was like costs four to $5,000. When you look at the hours that are, you know, the billable hours being used for this meeting, it's a four or $5,000 meeting and very inefficient. And so it was very painful to sit through. Um, so I tried to minimize the pain, but it was it was a hard one, hard bunch. Bill? Eight. So it's a specific thing to me, but the worst one I've ever gone through. Everybody hates the idea of homeowners associations. I used to live in a neighborhood that our house was on the modest end of that neighborhood. At the other end of the neighborhood, there were some old style mansions and and wonderful people. I had a lot of great neighbors. But a lot of them also were attorneys. And so we had had five or six homeowners association meetings. and Everybody had gotten along well and everything was moving along smoothly. And then one meeting, another lawyer showed up who decided that 
he needed to put his foot down. And the clash between the lawyer who was chairing the homeowners association and this guy who came in knowing nothing about the history and having spent no time to learn it and just tried to dominate the meeting with his personality against everybody else, it was the most painful two hours I've ever been in a room in my life. And I, we got nothing done and it was purely a personality clash and I just t went out of that going, whatever you do, don't let that happen <laughs> from now and into the future because everything went to hell in a handbasket five minutes into the meeting that lasted two hours. And Guy. Yeah, the worst one for me was recently uh, in April. I had to lay off my entire team. It was a it was a tough one to get in front of those folks. You know, these are people that uh, I've been working with for a decade and, and had to release them all. It uh, wound up uh, being a roundtable where people uh, actually talked about the good uh, that we had done in the communities. And so that made me feel proud to see, you know, there was tears in the audience and all that. But it it, uh, it reminded me that people are pretty resilient and they've all gotten back on their feet. But it was definitely one where I rehearsed. I had a couple note cards of what I was going to say and promised myself I was going to cry through the thing. Uh, just, you know, stood up and said what I needed to say. But I was really shocked that the way that people really stood up and just were proud, you know, of what we had accomplished for being a small company. Next question. Guy Cochran, speaking of that in Seattle, how do you decode body language? Jason. Oh, boy. Uh, you learn a lot of useless stuff on the way to a psych degree. One of the more interesting courses that I had to take had to do with body language. I was astounded um, when I, I read this book, which was not part of the coursework, mind you. Um, Joe Navarro wrote a book called What Everybody is Saying, and it, it focuses on certain things, how to identify deception, uh, build rapport, negotiate effectively, and, and really just improve your communication skills. One rule of thumb, a good takeaway from the book is that most people, unless they are really gifted actors, can hold back their body language from their true emotion about as long as they can hold their breath. After that, it, it, it becomes increasingly difficult, much like, you know, holding your breath past a minute or two. Nigel? Yeah, I found that uh, it's a great subject to get involved in. And it, it's a lot of fun, but it's also open to a lot of misinterpretation. If you're not a professional, you can misread body language. So, so... I would suggest in meetings you keep it fairly simple and ask yourself as the chairman of the meeting, are the team involved? Are they engaged? And you will note that by are they leaning forward? Are they leaning backward? Do they look distracted? Keep it at a very global level. I tell you an interesting meeting I had once with a client. The client decided they were going to beat me up for something that really wasn't our fault. And it became clear during the meetings that actually it wasn't our fault. It was actually his team's fault. And he physically started moving his chair away from the table. By the time the meeting was ended, he was like six feet from the table we were all sitting at. And I think everybody in that meeting understood the body language that that meant. And Alex? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I pay probably more attention to body language than almost anything else. <laughs> like, as people are talking, I, I pay way more attention to what they're, what, how they're talking and how they're sitting than, than what they're saying oftentimes. Uh, and that's going to give you a lot of information. You definitely want to uh, pay attention. Are they engaged? Are they, are they doing something else? Are they, um, you know, that's, that means they're, they're kind of turned off. <laughs> you know, so, uh, so I try to, I try to watch that pretty, pretty carefully. Um, it's, it's oftentimes way more important than what they're saying or not saying. And Courtney? 
You have to watch out for people who place too much importance on body language. I used to work for a director. It wasn't Alex. I used to work for a director who, uh, if you put your hand, if he saw any crew member putting their hands on their hips, standing with their hands on their hips, he considered that confrontational. You'd be fired or you would not come back again and work with that director again. And the AD had to remind everybody that's new on the crew not to do that because that director put a great deal of importance on body language and it just something you did accidentally could get you fired. And Bill. And the last thing for me is that sometimes you also give extra weight to somebody sometimes in terms of their body language. I've had circumstances where I've been somewhere and it's obvious you're keeping your eye on the CEO or the president or whoever the, the main focus in that room is, and you want to know if they're receiving what you're sending out well. But I also had another circumstance where the person who actually booked me for the gig, and I was in an auditorium, and I had maybe 150 people in front of me, and I glanced at him right as the meeting started, and he opened his laptop. And for the entire rest of the meeting, every time I looked over at him, his laptop was opening, and he was doing something else. And I can't tell you how distracted that was, because I got fixed on him rather than paying attention to the entire audience. I mean, he had helped book me, so I wanted to know he was okay, but it pulled me out of paying more attention to everybody. So it is possible to get, I think, over-involved in body language in a couple of ways, and it can be to your detriment. Next question. Next one from David Brady in New York, New York. When I schedule or call meetings, I tend to schedule them at odd times. For example, 1025 versus 1030, if only to keep people on their heels. What are some other tactics to keep the upper hand? Alex? I don't try to keep the upper hand, and I will say, I will say that uh, people who uh, – I love David – but if you, if you give me a, a 1025 meeting, I'm going to be like, what the what? You like broke my whole system. <laughs> like, like I'm in so many meetings and everything's in 30 minute slots. And so when people give me, I, there's a, there's some co companies that the culture is to do 45 minute meetings. Like, like just, just, just makes my, my head explode because I'm just like, oh, that, that doesn't fit into any of what I do. So to me, the whole world lives on top of the hour, bottom of the hour. Uh, don't give me anything different. Don't change anything because it's just, I needed to sit it. I have so many, you're one of eight to 10 meetings I have today. And I need you to fit into that, into that box. And when you go out of that box, it just makes me, uh, it makes me a little nutty. Um, and so, so I, I will say that that's, that's kind of the, the world that, that I live in is trying to stay there. What we used to do in Pixel Core is we would do everything we could to do all client meetings at the top of the hour and all internal meetings at the bottom of the hour. And, and we would, we would, and that told us what kind of meeting we were going to. And thank you so much to our producers for another great show. Thank you for your questions, for voting it up and down. Thank you so much to our panelists for your insights and sharing all of your experiences to help us all have effective meetings, manage effective meetings. And of course, our back end team for without which this would not be possible. And just letting you know what's coming up for the next couple of days. So we've got Q&A happening tomorrow and on Wednesday we'll be talking about the dynamics 
basics Wednesday Wednesday being our our audio day and then for the rest of the week you can head over to officehours.global to see the schedule and of course our talent traversal here we are is we've traveled 123,250 miles that's 198,353 kilometers that's more than 976 million bananas for scale again thank you so much for watching and we will catch you in after hours bye Totally watching the next 30 minutes is all going to be a John Cleese meeting. Oh, so <laughs> good. Is there a motion to adjourn? Is there a motion to adjourn? Uh, a yes. second. Never out of order. Call this in session. That's right. It's the world's tiniest gavel. Yeah, exactly. Good to have you back, Liberty. Yeah, good to have you.